So uh, before we jump in, we are in a little series that we basically been describing um, the year of biblical literacy. So beginning of 2018, which is just a couple weeks ago, we as a church have kind of made this commitment to read through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation and not just simply do it individually, though that is uh, available, but also to do it in community, which means we have what we call community groups, which are otherwise known as small groups or small Bible studies or home fellowships, whatever we want to call them. Um, so on our website, you can go and join, be a part of one of the small groups. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of them that meet all around the county in all cities. So check it out. And if there's one that doesn't meet your kind of criteria or the night of the week or the morning or whatever it is that works for you, uh, we w- would always encourage you to maybe assemble a handful of people and do that together. Uh, we are happy to help train you and help give you the information, the equipment that you need to be able to do what you need to do. But the big thing that we're encouraging you to do is read through Scripture and then also do it together in community. But we also mentioned that alongside of that, we are kind of going through a series on Sunday mornings to uh, help equip you to be able to do that well. So we're in the middle of like a, uh, the beginning of a new series that we started. There's going to be two uh, back-to-back series that we will uh, engage in over the next uh, two and a half months coming up to Easter. Uh, the first series, we're just simply describing the Bible, wisdom, and authority. And the idea behind this is to prepare Uh, our mental engines, uh, to equip you to read scripture. The second series is what we're just calling the story of God, which is an attempt to fly 30,000 feet above the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and to really understand what we would call the, the, God bless you, the the meta-narrative, the big picture of what scripture is all about. And uh, that's, that's a big idea for that. So one of the things that we've been mentioning over the past couple weeks is we have some goals, some hopes, uh, if you want to put it that way, uh, points of prayer that we are, we are praying for you guys, that as we enter into 2018, as you uh, receive the, the challenge to read scripture and be part of a community and grow as a disciple of Jesus, um, at least four things would happen in your life. Number one would be that you would definitely engage and actually read scripture, that you would in, imbibe a new practice in your life, maybe if that's something you've never done before. Um, Maybe because it's this big monster book that seems very, very old and outdated and at least, if anything, um, has some things that seem very odd to our culture, um, but that you would create space in your day-to-day life to actually uh, read it. The second thing our prayer is, is that you would learn how to read it. So what we've been saying is that there are ways to read scripture that are helpful and healthy, uh, that lead to flourishing in life and uh, there are also ways to read scripture that are not good, that don't lead to life, that actually can lead to oppression. Uh, this is where you enter into, you know, abusive relationships, if you want to think of it that way, with scripture or people abusing scripture to oppress or to cause problems with other people. So there is a way to read scripture that is accurate and it's good, it's helpful, and there are ways to read it that are not good. The third thing is that we're praying that we would be a community of people that really learn the overarching meta-narrative, the big picture, what we've been describing as the big story and the small story. So I think if I were to do a survey and ask you, what's your relationship with the Bible? What do you think about the Bible? What are some key highlights that you think about the Bible? You might be able to rattle off maybe half a dozen key stories. Well, David, you know, slept with some lady named Bathsheba, and I think that he took out her husband. Like, that might be able to rattle off, or there's some dude that got swallowed by a big fish, or that there's some dude that gathered every animal in the world and put them on some big ark. You know, so there may be ways in which you might think about scripture, little stories, 
But the big question would be, do you, do you know how those little stories play into the big story? Do you know what the big story is? Do you know that there is a big story? Uh, do you know that the main aim of the Bible is not about David sleeping with Bathsheba or about David you know, killing her husband or about a guy being eaten by a whale? There's a big meta-narrative. And our hope is that you would learn what that big meta-narrative is. And the final thing, fourth thing, is our hope would be that you'd be transformed. So our, our real aim, our real desire is that as you engage with Scripture, read it, and indulge in it, think about it, let it shape you, and wrestle with it, and work through points of confusion and points of tension, that you would actually truly be transformed. Because uh, the interesting thing about the Bible is the Bible is a book that's not intended to be read necessarily alone, because you're actually, there's something that happens when you read the Bible that you're actually also uh, interacting with the author of the Bible itself. So the hope is that when you read Scripture, you are actually transformed by the God who loves you, who made you. And uh, there's, a, there's a flip side to this, is that there are those that can read scripture, that can treat scripture like a really fanciful hobby, because the Bible is kind of a fascinating book, and it's possible to get really intrigued by this incredible book and go on all sorts of rabbit trails, and there are plenty of books on the planet about various rabbit trails in scripture that really have nothing to do with the main narrative, and that really aren't even part of the little stories in scripture. They're just interesting rabbit trails. And it's possible to read scripture, to be absorbed with scripture, to be really taken in amazement by scripture, but become a jerk. The way you treat people, condescending, rude, harsh, critical, and constantly looking for scapegoats to attack and slaughter and kill. And you're just, you're not a kind person. And the question is, how can someone, like the anomaly of like the mean Christian, how can somebody be so vastly aware and knowledgeable of this incredibly amazing book, yet such a jerk. Have you ever met that person? And the reality is, is because you were never transformed. You were never transformed. You, you, you're, you're interested in this book, like a hobby, but you're not really truly engaging with the God who wrote this book or inspired the writings of this book. So our hope ultimately is that we would become like Jesus, transformed and more aware of who God is and what God's up to in this world. So there you go. So with that being said, I want to jump in this morning to begin to take a look at some subject matter in this. So this message today is entitled, uh, the, or Why the Bible? Why interact with the Bible? Why do we even need the Bible? What's the point of it? These are some of the questions I want to try to uh, tackle and to think about and to consider as we begin to jump in and look at this. And again, this is kind of a teaching, a Bible teaching on the Bible as opposed to a like expositional Bible teaching that we oftentimes, for the most part, typically do here as a church community. Um, so again, for all the reasons I already expressed. So let me do this. Let me pray, and then we will begin to jump in. I'll lead off with a couple questions, and then we'll begin to take a look at some passages within the scripture. And if you guys don't have Bibles, um, as soon as I'm done praying, the uh, ushers would love to get you guys a Bible, because one of the things I told you for the past couple weeks is uh, I'm, I'm going to not be, uh, I'm going to be, you know, resisting the temptation to want to put the verses up on the screen, and which is what we oftentimes do, but there's a reason why I'm going to be resisting that temptation, is because um, I want to help us as a community of people to actually come as we gather as a community of God's people to bring our, our Bibles, whether that, you know, whether it be like your leather-bound book or um, even an app, which is totally fine as well. Again, like I've even said before the past couple of weeks, if you don't have a Bible, we have a growing library in our lost and found of really nice leather-bound Bibles. You can easily erase the names that are on there. So, um, 
Or you can take one of the Bibles that are going to be handed out to you as soon as I'm done praying. So let me pray. We'll jump in and begin to get to work on this question of why the Bible. God, we just, uh, we pause, we consider, we recognize who you are in this place and who we are in your story. Life's not about us. We're not the center. We're not the main characters. And what little role that we may have on stage, it's always a support role for you, for your purposes, for your kingdom, for your glory. Uh, so, God, we ask you right now that you would reshape, reorient, retrain our minds, our hearts, our affections, our wills uh, to love you, to be transformed by you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers, love to get your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, uh, keep this. This is our gift to you. Um, so, anyways... Uh, I want to start with a couple assumptions or things that as, as I was kind of thinking about the way that, for the most part, Western Christianity has this interesting relationship with the Bible. So here's, as I was thinking through this, Western Christianity has this very unique and strange relationship with the Bible. And the way I would describe it is it can oftentimes be treated like one or two things. Um, probably a handful of other things, but these are the two things that predominantly come to mind. Number one, like a prearranged marriage. Number two, like a silenced or ignored partner or marriage partner. So number one, let's take a look at the idea of a prearranged marriage. If I, can, I, can I say that? Is that cool? Like you enter into this relationship and you, there's a third party that's part of the relationship. It's called the Bible. You're, you're with it for better, for worse. And for some of us, you're like, ah, I didn't really want to be in relationship with the Bible. I don't really particularly like the Bible. I know what others do with the Bible. I don't want to be like those other people. So you have this odd relationship where it's uh, not comfortable, um, that you are bound beyond your personal choice and uh, in this relationship. And then this oftentimes leads to uh, reactions. Uh, so a lot of times you can be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and you have this reaction against this, this odd um, pre-arranged relationship with the Bible of, of embarrassment. You're like, yeah, the Bible, ah, it's so old and ancient and weird and odd and talks about, you know, a guy giving his wife or, you know, being given by his wife a concubine, have sex with a concubine or a guy being swallowed by a great fish. Like, it's an odd book. I get it. So that can oftentimes lead to apologizing, constantly saying, I'm, I'm sorry for the Bible, I'm sorry for what scripture says, um, and or excusing, making excuses for it. And, uh, but hardly an embrace of the Bible. Like this is, this, like I said, it's like a prearranged marriage for some. For others, uh, your relationship might be not like that type, the former one, um, where it's more like a silence or an ignored partner. So there are really no measurable degrees of animosity or acrimony that you might have towards Scripture, meaning you're not angry. You don't look at the Bible and be like, ah, I'm so embarrassed by the Scripture. It's, that's not in you, but rather your relationship with the Scripture might be more of one of disinterest uh, and or apathy. And so rather than actually jumping in, embracing, loving, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating upon Scripture, um, it's just sort of like it's in the back seat. You talk about it every once in a while. You might pick up a 
passage or a Bible every once in a while. I might read through a you know, devotional or Jesus Calling. You might take a photo of your coffee cup and your Bible and an open notebook and post on Instagram and be like, I'm doing my morning devotions. And, uh, you know, that may be your relationship with the Bible where it's, it's just it's there, but it doesn't have this incredible, pulsating, life-giving uh, relationship over you. It's just, just kind of there. It's silent partner, so to speak. Which both of these are kind of interesting, and, and, I, and I think even though they might be stereotypes, I, I think they represent to some large degree a lot of followers of Jesus' relationship. Let me even go one step further, okay? If, if I were to do a poll, which I, which I won't, if I were to sit down with just average people in this community, in this church, in this fellowship, in this, people, in this place that people call, and I would say as a church community, we, we have on a general level pretty high view of the Bible. Like we, we love what scripture uh, portrays. Scripture, I heard one of my favorite preachers, a guy that I've, I've read a lot by a long time ago, a guy named John Piper, he describes, I love the Bible the way I love my eye. It's kind of a funny thing, because it's like, what? Who loves their eye? Like, he says, but I love my eye, because my eye becomes his gate to allow me to see sunsets, and to watch my child get born into this world. I love my eye, because it allows me to see the beauty of my wife, and yada, yada. But I think that's a great analogy, because the reality is, Scripture is like this, this book, that we, we love. I think we have a high view of it. But if I were to ask each of you, like, how, how do you, what's, what's your daily ritual look like for embracing and, and interacting with this book? Um, what does it look like? How, how often do you go to it? How often do we, and again, this is not intended to like, like bring guilt or shame because some of you I can tell you're like looking down like, oh, I haven't read my Bible in like years. Again, none of that right here. All, all I'm simply trying to do is raise awareness, bring something to the surface that's interesting. That's, that's odd in an interesting way. And here's what I mean. That for the most part, as followers of Jesus, we claim to follow Jesus and this relationship with Scripture. But what's odd is that we base our lives around this book that we either distrust, dislike, or are totally disinterested by. We base our lives around this book that we either dislike, all right? It's like we're actually hostile towards it. It's like, oh, my gosh, it's full of misogyny, and it's full of, you know, uh, polygamy, and it's full of uh, abuse of slavery, and it's full of all these other things, uh, and violence, and war, and bloodshed, and all these things, the discrimination, all these things that we would look at. But again, that's partly due to the fact that maybe we're not reading Scripture right. Number one. Uh, so there is maybe a hostility, like a distrust, or a dislike. Like, I just don't really like the Scripture or like what it portrays. Or, uh, in a more casual sense, like I said, just uh, an apathetic disinterest. But again, do, do you understand the, the irony of that? Like, we literally base our lives on this book that we have this really unusual relationship with. So... All that to say that I want to begin to look at some uh, bigger, broader categories for us to think about why the Bible, which brings us back to my original question. Why the Bible? Does it matter? Should we even think about it? Should we even care about it? Or is this a book that we could just subjectively write off, put on, keep on a shelf, not allow into our lives, not allow into our churches, not allow into our everyday thinking and understanding about life and existence and humanity and so on and so forth. So what I would suggest to us is that there's two answers that I really want to give. So it's kind of a two-point sermon. Uh, you're welcome. And uh, two things I want to look at. Number one, I'll just kind of give you them, and then we'll backtrack and look at it. Number one, the reason why I would say why the Bible, number one, is because, first of all, Jesus loved the Bible. Jesus loved the Scriptures. So that's point number one. We'll come back to that. Point number two is because followers of Jesus... Follow Jesus. 
It's revolutionary, I know. Followers of Jesus, follow Jesus. So if Jesus loves scripture and follows the scripture, so hopefully I will try to create or paint out, even from scripture itself, we'll read a lot of them, um, to help convince you to think about or rethink maybe your relationship with scripture, whether it's strained or it's just like, uh, you know, pre-arranged marriage or this hostile relationship that you have, whatever the case is, my hope is to at least help you to think about it in a different context that may or may not necessarily be directly linked to how modern culture thinks about scripture. So number one, let's jump in and try to tackle this big question. So why the Bible? Number one, because Jesus loved the scriptures. First and foremost, Jesus loved the scriptures. Did you know that? That might come as a shock to some of us. Jesus loved the scriptures. And listen to this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 20. Let's read this and you can listen to it. Jesus, in dialogue with some of the religious leaders, again, the religious leaders, they would have been the ones that were recognized or credited, leaders of the institutionalized Torah foundations and the temple and so on. And Jesus is dialoguing with these guys. And here's what he says. Do you think, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Uh, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes or releases one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For whoever does not do them and teaches others, or whoever does them and teaches others to do them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, whichever translation you have. So Jesus, again, this is one of several passages that Jesus really exemplifies his direct relationship with scriptures. Now, again, some might argue and say, well, Jesus, gosh, he lived 2,000 years ago. He doesn't know all of the stuff that we know about the Bible now. Like we know now based upon modern textual criticism that the Bible can't be trusted or the Bible has discrepancies or the Bible's filled with contradictions and yada, yada, yada. But that's, that's an interesting argument because do you hear what you're saying? You're actually saying Jesus didn't know. You got other problems, actually, that you got to work out now. Because you're suggesting that Jesus, if Jesus is who he claims to be, which is, you know, fully God, fully man, God in the flesh, then what that means is that if he has no clue about the things that we learned about, which, frankly, a lot of modern textual criticism, I would say, is, is, is inaccurate or biased or just straight up wrong and or misleading. But the fact of the matter is Jesus had a a very strong relationship with the scripture. So which raises the question, next slide, is what did Jesus see the scripture to be? How did he see the scripture as? And this kind of brings up three things. We'll go through these quickly. Number one, Jesus saw the scripture as a story which reached its climax in him, which is the words of what Jesus said. I have come to fulfill. The word that he uses there is to, to completely bring to fulfillment, to bring to fruition, to basically bring about the robust reality of what the scripture story is all about. So again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. Do you know the overarching meta-narrative of scripture? You should, because it points somewhere. It's all about Jesus. That doesn't mean that Jesus can be found in every single page of the Bible, the way we often tend to think. Like, where is Jesus when the midst of Judah's having sex with Tamar? Where's Jesus there? You know, his daughter-in-law, that she, he should have given a, a you know, that, again, that story's in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. Like, but where's Jesus there? 
Uh, again, you're not going to necessarily find him in that story, but in the overall big picture, he's there because it plays into the whole story. Do you know how to discover that? What Jesus is saying, I, he sees himself as the ultimate climactic point of the scripture itself. So the next thing that we see is that Jesus actually has a view of scripture that he sees that it's totally trustworthy. You can trust it, totally trust it. Now, again, this is interesting because in today's culture, there's all sorts of discussion going on, all sorts of ideas floating on the internet, YouTube, uh, critics and whatnot that would say, no, the Bible is not trustworthy because X, Y, and Z. Modern scholarism, modern scholars say this, or modern uh, whatever uh, discoveries describe this, or so on. But it, it does nothing but cast aspersions upon the fact that the Bible cannot be trusted. But Jesus saw the Bible as being trustworthy. This is why he goes on to say, not one iota will pass away. Now, an iota is a Hebrew letter. be kind of the equivalent of an English letter, like the dotting of an I, or the crossing of a T. So the little dot, the smallest item in the entire uh, English alphabet, or the iota, the smallest letter in the entire Hebrew alphabet. Jesus is saying that the scripture, so the question is, did Jesus have a high view of scripture or a low view of scripture? Apparently it's really, really high. It's so high that Jesus says not one even jot or tittle, not one iota will pass away until all is, a, is accomplished and fulfilled. So his point is that it's totally 100% worthy of trust. The third thing is he describes it as authoritative. This is where he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches them will be called least. So what Jesus is saying is that the authority, that scripture actually imbibes or embodies some level, some degree of authority. That shouldn't shock us because our society is filled with authoritative voices, right? That's, that's what a YouTube pop star is, right? They are the authority on eating vegan or they are the authority on dressing or looking cool or you know, music, whatever. They are the authority, I think. So that shouldn't come as a shock to us. That scripture is an authority. It's an authority. Jesus is actually breathing his authoritative approval of it, saying it is authoritative. It's where he says, and if, if anybody relaxes these things, or in other words, uh, diminishes or detracts or takes away or tries to explain away or justify or say, well, this is not exactly what it meant or this is what it really meant, but it's, it contradicts other areas. He's saying that he's actually called least. So there is, there is a, there's a level of authority which Jesus places in this. Which leads a little bit to kind of the subject of authority. Again, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but the subject of authority is a really crucial one. So we got to talk a little bit about the history, or at least the brief history of authority, which I want to look at right now, is that within culture at large, there have been these tectonic shifts in authority over the past, I don't know, 500, 600, 700, 800 years that have happened. And I'm not sure that we're all fully aware of this, so I want to give you a quick little, like, brief uh, intro to just think about this, to chew on this, to be aware of the fact that this is the world in which we live in. So, for example, what's called pre-enlightenment. So, in other words, before the Enlightenment period, the discovery of the sciences and discovery in a, in a whole new profound way in which that began to change and shift thinking. Um, before that, people, there was, you know, times were more simple if you want to describe it that way. But the way that society, for the most part, at least Western society, for the most part, was, was structured is that at the center of the authoritative discussion was the Bible and the promoter of the Bible, in this case, obviously, a priest or religious leader. They were the ones that, so if you had a question, you lived in a village and, you know, you had an issue or a question or you want to get married, you want to get divorced or some sort of big subject matters going on in your life, you had a question of authority, like what should I do on dot, 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 fill in the question, fill in the, uh, the, the, the blank. You would go to the priest and he would open up his Bible and be like, well, the Bible says X, Y, and Z. So he's giving you the authority. So then you walk away and be like, okay, whatever. 
you would unquestionably just go ahead and follow that. Now, that breeds all sorts of questions that have arisen, which is kind of one of the reasons why the Enlightenment happened, is because what was happening pre-Enlightenment was a lot of abuses were going on. People were misusing scripture. Uh, they were using scripture even as ways to justify war, which, by the way, that's, that's happened. The, that's why I'm saying earlier that there's a right way to read scripture. There are wrong ways to read scripture. There are ways that, to read scripture that lead to life and flourishing and transformation into the image and the likeness of Jesus. And there are ways to use scripture to be like, hey, let's go conquer uh, those have, who have different skin color than us. Let's go conquer another region. Let's go have and exercise authority over people that don't look like, act like, think like us. And because it's in the Bible. Yeah, sure, it's in the Bible. But that's not what the Bible storyline is all about. You've just completely mutilated it. You've destroyed it. You've simply subverted this big story. You've extracted it. And now you've abused it. And now you have become an oppressor. So this has been a problem throughout the history of the church. And I would even say throughout the history of even modern times, uh, people still do misuse scripture. Again, we can ask questions for a really long time. How do we deal with this? And hopefully we'll try to answer some of these in the weeks to come. Which leads us now to the post-enlightenment. Because in the post-enlightenment, um, what you have now is science becomes the main authority. If you have a question about life and flourishing and society, you go to the sciences. The sciences will give you the answer to that. And the sciences prophet, which is, in this case, a professor. He's a trained, skilled purveyor of uh, scientific uh, information and truth. He was the one, or she would be the one, that would now give you the information. So authority comes from, or is derived from science plus professor. Pre-enlightenment, authority would have been derived from the Bible plus the priest. Now, in today's world, you can describe it as either modernity, like modern times, or post-modernity, meaning after modernity. What we have is what sociologists would describe as what's called the autonomous self. This is just a fancy way of basically saying you are the main purveyor of authority. What you feel feels right is right. Does that make sense? That, that's the way society, for the most part, at least in the West, works. Now, the reality is... Uh, if you want to push it a little bit further, if uh, you, would, you would add to that a therapist. So if you go to a therapist, you would say something like, well, I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z, plus my therapist said this is who I am and how I'm supposed to be. This is how I'm wired because this is what my therapist is. Um, this is not in any way slam against therapy, so if you go through therapy, that's totally fine as well. But my point is that, is that at the center of this is sort of the autonomous self, the mentality that says the authority over all things is, is me. I make the decisions. What it, what feels right to me is what I do. So we become kind of the final authority. Now, this is an interesting mixed bag because on one hand, nobody is individually the ultimate sum total of authority in yourself. Because that presupposes there are never, ever, ever any external forces that shape your opinion or shape your thinking, right? And that's totally false. Otherwise, there'd be no need for marketing. There'd be no need for like, 1 a.m. commercials or infomercials. There'd be no need for self-help books. There'd be no need for YouTube. There'd be no need for Instagram story. There'd be no need for any of these things. The whole idea behind a lot of these things is to pass along, to cross-pollinate uh, our minds in terms of what decisions that we will make. So nobody is alone making decisions as an autonomous self. We are all shaped and influenced by something or someone or some idea or some ideal. Does that make sense? How are you guys doing? Is all right? All right. So the point that I would make with regard to this is that there's contradictions even within this as well. So for example, 
today's world, you know, if you were to be driving down, uh, I don't know, uh, Losas Valley Road right across from the middle school. So if you are there during school hours and the kids are out walking, speed limit gets reduced from like 45 down to 25. So if you're driving through there at 50 miles an hour, cop pulls you over a little bit down the way, uh, he's about to ticket you and he asks you, do you know I pulled you over? And you're like, nope, I have no idea. He's like, because you were speeding. Uh, you're not going to be like, well, actually, what I really think was going on, I felt like I was keeping the speed limit. That's just, you, you cannot make an argument like that. There, there are codes, there are rules, there are laws that, for the most part, doesn't matter what your interpretation of the law is or what, what the law even, the purpose of the law is for. Like, that's fine for you to have that, but within society, for society to actually function, there has to be laws and codes and rules and ethics to abide by. And so for the, so for the most part, the idea of the autonomous self uh, being the sole authority, which, again, is the prevalent way in which most moderns and postmoderns tend to think, um, there's, there's uh, elements of brokenness even with that as well. So I'm just simply uh, trying to paint a picture, which ultimately leads me to Thomas Jefferson. You didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson obviously was one of the guys that founded our country. He was one of the most uh, in, uh, helpful guys to kind of help frame the way that we think as Americans. In other words, you can almost think of it this way. Thomas uh, Jefferson is literally in the DNA of what it means to be an American. He's, he's like, he framed like our, our thinking as people in this country. So, Thomas Jefferson's an interesting guy because he was known as what's called a deist, um, which basically for the most part was somebody that believed in some sort of entity or deity or God or lowercase g God that's maybe way, way far removed from our universe. He doesn't involve himself in our day-to-day -day life. Um, so for the most part, it's my job to just kind of figure things out and go on with the rest of my life. So he would have been sort of uh, translated or transposed into modern culture as like a modern-day like an agnostic, someone that would say, I don't really know exactly who God is or what God is or where God is. I don't really know. Um, yeah, if there's a God, um, sure. I don't really have any clue as to anything else beyond that. Thomas Jefferson is an interesting guy because he actually read the Bible all the time. He describes himself as a guy that read Scripture all the time. But this is really unique because Thomas Jefferson does so in a very American way. Here's what Thomas Jefferson did. So what you see right here is actually a Bible. Uh, I, I believe it was owned by Thomas Jefferson, I think. Um, or it's just a copy or replica of that. Um, but what he did is throughout the Bible, he literally cut and pasted, cut out every section in the Bible that he disagreed with. Every section of the Bible that he didn't like, every section of the Bible that had to do with, you know, miracles or other things that just seemed extraordinary, extraordinary, beyond the ordinary. He was like, nope, I don't like that. I like this. I don't like that. And he had what was ultimately left with this uh, very truncated version of scripture. So he literally took this pair of scissors and cut out everything that he did not agree with. So he was left with this thin, mutilated scrapbook of bits and pieces of the Bible that he, again, he would then read on a regular basis. So this is kind of fascinating. So the reality is, though, I actually really admire his, his honesty. Because what he did, he had the audacity to do what most of us would never even dream of doing. He literally lived his ethical understanding. So he was just like, I disagree with this, this miracle, this reality. So there's no way this could have happened. And, and then he created his own little edited version of the Bible. For most of us, most of us in our modern world, those that would, I think, even go so far as to say they're followers of Jesus, our relationship with the Bible is less honest. So what we do, for the most part, is 
unlike Thomas Jefferson, we pick and choose Bible verses from Jesus and from the Bible, ones that we particularly like. We call that chair picking. And we take the ones that we like and ones that we don't like. We either never read them or never talk about them or never focus on them or even try to dismiss them away. Again, not cutting them out per se, physically, with scissors, but we dismiss them. We push them off to the side. We shove them into the margins. So what we do is we, we love the message of Jesus when he talks about love and justice for society, social justice, uh, when he talks about freedom or unmasking. There's one that we really love with Jesus when he unmasks the religious snobbery of the arrogant people. We're like, yes, Jesus. He's the one that fights for the underdog. We love that Jesus. But the Jesus that calls out through his teachings the reality of the trustworthiness and the authority of Scripture, we choke on that. Or when Jesus goes even further, we tend to ignore things that Jesus teaches about marriage or divorce or sexuality or money. Or when Jesus talks about hey, loving your enemy and having forgiveness for those that have hurt you or wounded you or have done things against you uh, or war and retribution. When we're ready to pick up a sword and fight and attack or, uh, or cast out aspersions against other people or use a sense of vengeance uh, for our own good. We tend to ignore those things. And we're like, ah, see, so what we're actually doing is we are being less genuine than, say, someone like Thomas Jefferson. But it's the exact same thing. The exact same thing. So it brings back this big question of, of authority. So Jesus, going back into the story, had this high view of the Bible. It can be said of Jesus that he read Scripture, he obeyed Scripture, he taught Scripture, he memorized Scripture, he trusted and relied upon Scripture, he quoted Scripture, he fulfilled Scripture. You can say this, Jesus was totally obsessed with Scripture. His whole life was geared around Scripture. So this leads me to the next thing, and I'll wrap this up. The second question, why the Bible, is in terms of answer, idea, or point that I want to make, is because followers of Jesus follow Jesus. So, if Jesus had this incredibly high view of the Bible, he read it, followed it, obeyed it, quoted it, memorized it. You can look at Jesus, for example, with regard to his mind, his will, his heart. Scripture says of the followers of Yahweh that they're to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. Uh, you can look at Jesus and say that Jesus, with all of his mind, loved and quoted God's word. So here he is in the midst of his temptation when Satan comes and tempts him. You know, turn this, these stones into bread and all these types of things. That his mind, he, he's, he's sharp and he says, no, Satan, it is written. So he goes back and he trains his mind to think upon Scripture. Uh, later, we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus is come upon by the religious as well as the, the militaristic might, and they're about to arrest him. So Peter whips out a sword, and he's about ready to attack, and he actually does attack. And Jesus says, put away your sword, Peter. Then he goes on to say this radical statement. He says, how else are the scriptures to be fulfilled? That's shocking. Like, Jesus is like, in the midst of the garden, he's retraining not only his will, but the will of all the others around him, if you want to think of retraining. The idea of like, he's saying, no, no, we are following the script, the scripture, the narrative that God has given to us. We're not making this stuff up on our own, guys. We are following the scripture. We're devoted to the scripture. Then finally, we also see that Jesus, while he's on the cross, 
during the time of the crucifixion, again, if you want to imagine in your mind the most profoundly strenuous moment of your entire life, here's Jesus, literally stripped naked. And again, uh, history comes along, and we're a little bit embarrassed by a naked man on a cross, so we throw a loincloth on him. But imagine in your mind a naked man, God, the God-man, naked, stripped, bare, totally, 100% vulnerable to all judging and criticizing eyes, um, people mocking him. Here's Jesus on the cross. And from the very cross, he's quoting scripture. At the most painful moment of his entire life, uh, C.S. Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, he describes it this way. You prick Jesus' skin and he bleeds Bible. Like Jesus saw the scripture as so highly impactful and valuable and trustworthy and authoritative that here he is in the most profoundly desperate moment of his entire life and he can't even help himself but speak scripture. So again, that brings us to followers of Jesus. So why, why the Bible? And this is where I would say followers of Jesus follow Jesus. So let's think this out just a little bit more broadly. So when a person says, I'll follow Jesus, or pray the sinner's prayer, or say, I gave my heart to Jesus, or get born again, however way in which you would describe your relationship with Jesus, what we are agreeing to is that we will follow Jesus wherever he leads us. We will, we will do whatever it is that he calls us to do. Um, we have, there's, a, there's a mythologizing, I would say, that for the most part, Western Christians have about the life that Jesus calls us to. So it shows up, especially in, in, a, in a Western mindset, that we have this suspicion that Jesus is going to make our lives 100% better. So to follow Jesus means uh, I'm going to get a trophy spouse. I might get that job that I've always wanted. I'll get better looking. I'll lose 25 pounds. I'll be able to fit in the jeans that I once fit in and I'm not able to do anymore. I'll be able to like grow taller. My life will get better. Everything will get better for my life. And the reality is that's not the case. It's not the case. To follow Jesus sometimes means to follow Jesus into areas that are, that are radically challenging and very hard, confusing. How else do you describe or subscribe to Jesus' command? Love your enemy. When every fiber of your natural being says, I want to crush my enemy. I want to gossip about my enemy. I want to punch him in the throat. My enemy. The last thing I want to do is lovingly give myself to my enemy. Do you understand how painful that is? Do you understand how challenging that is? Do you understand how much that comes against our own autonomy? Because everything in our autonomous self says, I'm the king. And the king was defamed or disliked or disrespected. And nobody disrespects this sovereignty without paying for it. And Jesus says, no, no, love your enemy. Do you realize how painful that is? So when Jesus says, through other teachers as well as himself, trust the scriptures, he's not asking you to do something that's going to be easy. He's not asking you to do something that will somehow always make sense. There will be moments on this journey of trusting scripture that it will not make any sense to you. It will seem ludicrous in some cases. It will go against every fiber of your being. It will not, it will be radically countercultural. But to follow Jesus 
means to follow Jesus where Jesus leads. Jesus had this relationship with Scripture that without question was unparalleled. So listen to how Paul would state this, and I'll wrap this up with a little Bible Project video, and I'm done. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, 17, it says this. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. This is another way of saying the sacred scriptures. So Timothy, we don't, know a whole ton, we don't know a whole ton about him, but what we do know is that he was brought up in a traditional Jewish home that had the scriptures as a regular uh, feeding for his own soul. His grandmother and mother taught him scriptures, and this is what Paul is referring to. He's like, you are familiar with the sacred writings. Now, many of us didn't necessarily have that. You did not have this regular relationship with the sacred writings, scripture. So Paul is saying, Hey, be reminded of your childhood and how you had this relationship with the sacred writings. He says, which are actually able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, which taps into this larger meta narrative of what scripture is all about. It leads somewhere, and ultimately that somewhere is not a somewhere, it's some, someone, it's Christ. And as he goes on to say in verse 16, all scripture is a famous passage that many of us are probably familiar with. He says, all scripture is God breathed out, and it's profitable. For teaching, meaning to help instruct and help us understand. For reproof, meaning to correct us. So in other words, uh, if you read passages in Scripture and it contradicts you, don't be shocked by that. that that's, what, that's what reproof is. Because um, to, not, to not ever have that happen may presuppose that you're reading the Scripture through a lens that you have created yourself. So if God really is God, then there will be times when God will say things to us that will not make sense and it will actually maybe maybe even feel like an insult. God, what do you mean by that? Are you kidding me? And God's like, nope, I'm God. There's 300 other angles to this thing that you haven't even, you don't even have the leverage to look at it. Just trust me. Just trust me. It might not make sense. Just trust me. So that's what proof is. Correction sets us back on course. Training in righteousness so that the person of God can become complete and equipped for every good work. I want to finish with a couple quotes and then the little video. So a guy by the name of Ray Lubeck, he is a professor out at Western Seminary. He says this, uh, for believers to follow Jesus, this is such a great quote. He says, for believers to follow Jesus implies, among other things, adopting the same attitude towards God's word as Jesus had. Simply put, we cannot truthfully say that we are followers of Jesus if we neglect or refuse to obey what the Bible tells us. It's a great quote. Another guy by the name of Andrew Wilson, he is a PhD student out at King's College in London. He has written several books or authored several books. He says this, whenever scripture challenges some of our deeply held beliefs, as it often does, we have a choice. So, so if you ever read the Bible and you're like, oh my gosh, this doesn't make any sense. In fact, this totally does not align with what CNN is promoting or even what Fox News is promoting. What should I do? I have a crisis of faith. You're at this like moment, where do I go? Left, right, straight, which way? Which way do I go? Up, down, I have no idea. He says, whenever scripture challenges some of our deeply held beliefs, as it often does, we have a choice. We can challenge the Bible, or we can let the Bible challenge us. Don't be afraid of that pain that scripture might have, that pinch. It will be there. If it truly is God's word, it should pinch from time to time. It will pinch from time to time. And then finally, he goes on to say, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. Think about that. Why do we trust the scripture? Because scripture says it's trustworthy? Do you, do you realize the Book of Mormon says it's trustworthy? Do you realize the Koran 
says it's trustworthy. So wh why not throw this into the mix? There's a reason why we don't trust those. There's a reason why we trust Scripture over every other claim of revelation, because Jesus trusted Scripture. Jesus is a supreme authority. He's the king. He claims Scripture is authoritative. He claims Scripture is life-giving. He goes on to say, I love him, and I've decided to follow him, so if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Such a great quote. I'm going to finish with a uh, passage out of the book of Matthew, and I'll show you that video. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Jesus with his disciples. This is after the resurrection. He's about ready to what's called ascend into heaven, and he's going to leave. And he tells his disciples, he says, and when they saw him, they all worshipped him, and then it says, and some doubted. I love the Bible's honesty. So if you're telling a story that's going to have some street cred, you'd want to make sure that the main players in your whole new religion are 100% bridled to this new movement. But the writer here says, hey, a bunch of them all worship and adore, but there's a handful of them that are like, eh, I don't know if I believe this stuff yet. They all drank the Kool-Aid, not me yet. I love that honesty. But it goes on to say that in this moment, Jesus then goes on, says to them, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples to all nations. That phrase, when he says all authority in heaven and earth, he doesn't say has been given to the Bible. It's been given to me. So we believe the Bible because we believe Jesus. Jesus has, holds all supreme authority. He's king. Because he's king, and this king was completely in love with, transformed by, given himself over to, shaped his ministry by this God-breathed word. So Jesus' followers then follow Jesus. So again, I realize this may even raise a dozen more questions in your mind about morality and ethics and sexuality and all sorts of other things. And hopefully we will get to the, some of those in the weeks to come. But I want to at least bring our attention back to the big E on the I chart, which is Jesus is king. So the real issue is what I would ask you is not so much like, guys, if you have a bad relationship with the Bible, figure out a way to square your relationship with that Bible. No, first of all, I would say it's an issue with Jesus. Square your relationship with him. Discover the kingship of Jesus. Discover the overwhelming, awe-inspiring, compelling beauty of this king that has not abandoned us, but has completely come into our story, took upon himself all the consequences of our brokenness and rebellion, completely, and then invites us to trust him, which is also an invitation into the world of the scriptural narrative. I'm done. I want to show you the video, and then I'll have the worship team come on up. They'll get ready to go, and then we'll wrap this up and sing a song in response. So here's the video. The Bible's an important book, but it's really long. Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but altogether they tell one unified story. So what's the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. 
And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity. Or in Hebrew, Adam. And they're made as God's image. Which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It'll give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this knowledge, and as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately, a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. And so, God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms apart from God. Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in. And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile, and that's exactly what happened. So even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends, and these promises are left hanging. And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion. He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into and resisted its power. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. And that's confusing but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil, than even death itself. So now humanity's presented with a new choice. Represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power. People who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return. 
The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus. But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders, called apostles, they wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus. And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so the Bible ends by pointing to the future day when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God. Okay, so that's the story of the Bible, and it brings all of these books together. But what's interesting is that each book contains a different kind of literature that contributes to the story in a unique way, and that's what the next video will begin to explore. So, in conclusion, the real issue is the authority of Jesus. Is he king? Do we submit our lowercase a authority to King Jesus and allow him to reshape and reframe our understanding, reorient our heart? That's the thing that we need to always think about and wrestle with and bring to God and do business with God. So, why don't we finish up, and we're going to finish with a song and worship and respond as we always do, because hearing God's word always elicits or calls forth a response, and our hope would be that the response would be one of turning to Jesus. So how about we all stand, and I will pray over us. We'll partake of communion, as we always do. It's a way of eating the bread and drinking the cup and being reinvited, if you would, into a new way of being human. To receive the elements of the bread and the cup is to be reminded of the fact that we have a king that gave himself for us and then invites us to be people, the types of people that invite others to that table, to reconcile our differences, to extend forgiveness, to be transformed by this God that has set himself in this world to remake us. So that's the invitation. So let's do some business with God. If you're here and you need some prayer, uh, I'll be up in the front. We'll have some leaders in the front that would love to pray with you. I'll pray right now. And let's continue to have a posture of worship and response to God as we take the communion, worship, and pray. God, thank you for your love. And we now turn our hearts, God, to you to respond to you as king. Not as a king that has this oppressive authority, but a king that laid aside that power and became vulnerable and weak for us. So that we who truly are vulnerable and weak and yet we mask it by every facade we can create. God, we turn our hearts to you now.